Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis podcast. This episode, episode 30, we're covering chapter 7 of part 1 low of book 2, Adulthood Rights of Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis Trilogy. My name is Rich Nacton, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. Michael Klinker. Hi, everyone. 30 episodes, Richard. I just realized, really nice round number. Yeah, it's been a yeah. while since we've been doing this. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, so it's definitely more than a year now, isn't it? Because uh, it would be, what, uh, 20-something episodes for a year. Yeah. And the books are getting more and more interesting. Things are. Mm-hmm. It's being, uh, we're getting more and more interesting protagonists. Yes, and uh, you know, this chapter we see uh, a potentially life-threatening thing to one of our n- relatively new characters. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's uh, yeah, exploring some some interesting stuff. I, this this book is, is is the longest of the three in the trilogy, by the way. That's, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, in terms of, do you know like numbers and of pages? Uh, um, paper copy for- maybe. I have forgotten the total word count. I have to check my okay, uh, okay. my file. I don't have yeah. Word count is probably better because if you have pages and different size fonts, and it's gonna be a bit of a mess. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that when I a uh, bit of an aside on this because I did mention last week potentially putting that stuff up on the website. The, oh the yeah. Word counts. I haven't done it yet, but um, I got started. But oh, One nice. of the things I was equivocating over was uh, because my 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 code that that does the word counts and all that stuff starts from the the raw text files. I've just got .txt files of the ebooks because so I bought them from Amazon and then stripped off the DRM because fuck the DMCA. Um, and uh, the, hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and you know, so then I have them in a, a proper format in in EPUB formats and and in, in text format, so I can start from that and do my by analysis on it. But I was thinking about whether or not. Like what? What starting point I could put in in the the Git repo that backs up the website, um, and not have that be a copyright issue because I can't put the raw text files up there because you know otherwise. Yes, yes, that's problem. correct. But but I think I, I can get away with putting the uh, the tokenized version of the book as a as a, a data file, so I can take all the all the individual words and have them annotated as um as like which part of the chapter they're from. And I think that that counts as sufficiently transformative uh, and and as uh, sufficiently different from the other one as, as to be adequate um, based on a legal decision in a Google versus Perfect Ten court case. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I guess you could just have the word count for each chapter as well in form of like a uh, database or a table, basically. And maybe that would be sufficient. I mean, oh yeah, I mean the the that won't actually go. Uh, I'm just saying, what what can I put in? What can I put in the public Git repo that backs up the website yeah. and not have it be a copyright violation? Because yeah, it's yeah. just it's easier for me to work to have all those things be a product of the like the, the graphs and everything just der- derived from a source file of some kind. Um, no, absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Fair enough. So <laughs> I guess for all the listeners, you can you know look forward to the graphs that Richard's gonna make, and I'm so hel- helping with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was uh, an immediate aside. Yeah, nice tangent from the beginning. Uh, something to look forward to. Um, but I guess let's go with my predictions for the chapter seven, the final yes. chapter of this um, section, of this part, sorry. Um, so my prediction from the last um, recording was that some time passed and Tino decided to stay in the village. Um, maybe we learn more about Phoenix. Um Akin learns more about Tino, and Tino learns more about Lilith. And I thought maybe some other people from Phoenix will arrive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I wasn't sure about their intentions, but I thought maybe there would be some situation that more people from Phoenix may arrive. Maybe I thought maybe um, Tino's uh, parents, but it seems that I was I, I missed the mark on this one. I mean, there were some more people from Phoenix showing up, but, but yes. not in... Um... <laughs> Not in a Not good in nature a um, way. Yeah. Hmm. So, oh well. Shall we launch into the, the chapter summary then? Absolutely. So, we start the chapter back to Akin, um, learning that he did this, his first steps um, with Tino and the fact that he started to trust Tino uh, more um, or fully, to be honest, even though Dichan warned him in the past. And at the very beginning of the chapter, we get spoiled of what is to come. Akin and Tino uh, being alone when the resistors come looking for children to steal. Um, 
the whole story of the Raiders appearing starts with Tino going to cut wood for the guest house. Um, hmm. We learn about the boundaries of the village low. Um, after breaking his axe, Tino started to take Akini with him because Tino couldn't tell what was a tree and not part of the space-going entity. And um, Yeah, so I think just to... Like, mm-hmm. He tried to cut down a tree and broke his axe <laughs> because it wasn't a tree. So uh, apparently this is like... Very resistant. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be... So the whatever the, the ship is made of then, so this is what the one thing we've um, been sort of like uh, told by a side, is that the, resist- mm-hmm. the ship's resistant, even though it's organic, it's super resistant, stronger than mm-hmm. the metal. Yep, or at least enough to like, you know, put a solid nick in the, uh, in the blade of your axe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I wonder, I mean, in nature, there are some materials that have this sort of, like, tensile strength, I would say, maybe, or mm-hmm. toughness. Toughness is probably better. Um, that would, you know, obviously we can talk about minerals, but minerals don't really match here. Um, although, you know, if if the Onkali can um, manipulate the... Um, the organic, uh, org- uh, the chemistry, so that you know it produces diamond-like <laughs> surface. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, so it could be some kind of a, um, effectively like a a, a grown nano-engineered fiber of some kind, right? Yeah. That's I mean, it, like uh, I mean, it's probably more in in your area of expertise than mine, but like mineralization in bones, right? It's kind of a, you know, it's producing some kind of external um, structure to the cells that has you know useful physical properties well that's what i was thinking about it's just mm. the, like the fact is that the, you know usually if those things involve um the position of some sort of mineral or some sort of mm. compound that's um that structure is very lattice like you would say mm. um so things like obviously um in bones as you mentioned in calcium phosphate is well hydroxyapatite that's what what we call it um mm is what you know what the bone gives the bone the, the, the its strength and it's because it forms crystals basically um so mm. the question is now like what um what do we have here it could be might be more you know like um more futuristic let's say you know as you mentioned nanotechnology some sort of polymer like material that get deposited in the on the outer surface or maybe within the cells to make the between the cells like a uh cell uh, matrix i would say that gives it some mm-hmm. um, like a thick let's say boundary between the soft inside and the tough outside but who knows i mean i know like in, in, there's polymers that kind of have long range covalent connections in 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 biological systems but I'm, I'm just thinking if there's anything that's like a uh, a really large scale st- structure that's covalently connected because i mean if it's you know something like um bone it's you know, it's ionic right it's it's crystalline yes, yes. But i don't know i don't have any like really macroscopic structures that are a continuous molecule in the sense of all being covalently bonded i don't know i mean you know one thing is plastics right there's, that's you know plastics are basically covalently bond mm-hmm. like repeated uh, monomers of something like you know carbon based or sulfur based um, compounds. So, but but, uh, but like a biologically produced version of that. That's, well, I mean, that you say that. I think that could be probably one of the reasons. Uh, you know, it's one one potential explanation to it because um, you know we have bacteria who are able to produce diesel right or like so basically mm-hmm. you can make an organism to produce a long chain carbon compound so technically it would be possible for a advanced or uh, a species or for even for us to do something like this right so mm-hmm. um it's just I we mean, don't need more like- plastic because there is enough plastic on the planet but you know if you wanted to mm-hmm. potentially there is possibility mm-hmm. and there are things like biofilms which are mainly more kind of sugar based yes but, yeah yeah huh. well anyway, anyway. <laughs> yeah. so that's speculation aside yeah speculation aside um 
we have a bit of description of what low is right we know we're told you know low being the name of the village but also the space entity and um, the low entity shaped itself according to the desires of its occupants and the patterns of the surrounding vegetation its bite and its organs were better protected than any living thing native to earth no axe or machete could mark it until it was older no native vegetation would grow within its boundaries so it's like very selfish organism that basically as you said in previous uh, episode camouflaged itself to look like mm. the surroundings but really doesn't allow the surroundings to penetrate its um area i would say it, it, it's interesting that it's so kind of uh, a guarding of its border at this point right yeah maintaining a, a separation despite doing the mimicry mm. but I, I don't know if previously we've introduced the name of the village or, or slash entity um low i don't believe so i because um... I, I i don't think we've done it in the podcast but i can't remember if it's come up in the book before but the, like, I... the name of the village is low which also kind of applies to the organism that is the village sort of and also uh, the part one of the book is called low so indeed yeah so yeah um... so it sort of makes sense but then again i don't know i can't now i cannot think like if it was called before that or is just called the trading village hmm. but uh, yeah we, we, we now know where the, the name of the part comes from at yeah. any rate uh, yeah yeah um, so this was the reason also why Lilith and the rest of the village would set up the gardens so far away from the village because you know no vegetations would grow within the boundary of the village itself hmm and, you know, as it happened, Lo could provide good food from its own body with help of Don Kali's stimulation, but most of the humans preferred not to be dependent. Understandably, right? In case something happens. Akin thus, you know, was taken with Tino to help to understand and show where he can cut and how to avoid certain dilapidated gardens, um, you know, because some people would not be as good as taking care of their gardens, said gardens, so... Uh, and Tino had the tendency to just slash away from anything that stands in front of him. Um, <laughs> yeah, they seem to have quite a uh, a fondness for leaving things looking undisturbed, right? They don't. Uh, there's no sort of clear delineation between the the forest and their their planted areas. Yeah, and as we were told before by Lilith in the previous chapters, that there are some plants that keep invading the garden. So maybe you know that's that's another mm-hmm. thing, like that you no. Know, yeah, just uh, getting overgrown with other stuff that they can't yeah. keep on top of. Mm-hmm. Akin, or any construct in fact, could not help to knowing the boundary of the village because every uh, sensation they experienced was different. It felt like not home. Uh, it, we were told about that initially it made Akin cringe because the vegetation would touch him um you know it it didn't it it wasn't feeling familiar but it, then it he desired it more actually started to be instead of being cringe but like he desired more to go out because it's because of its strangeness mm-hmm. uh he would deliberately let tino walk further than necessary to experience new things so poor tino made to, <laughs> being made to walk <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. I, I think i can uh empathize with this sensation right you know it's the kind of uh the comfort of the familiar but then it's uh, it's interesting to, to experience the new things yeah absolutely yeah going on the undiscovered paths just you know steering away from the walked path that usually people take to maybe discover something new fully understandable mm-hmm. um we also to- are told that no matter what akin could not stop himself from stuffing things into his mouth um he would tell tino things like he shouldn't cut a sapling because it may produce some fruits in the future or the leaves are good to eat to tino's surprise akin never poisoned himself you know even though tino was, tino would say like by now you should have poisoned yourself like 10 times over um mm-hmm. but he understood why akin's great tongue that looked like big gray slag as tino's cry, according to tino was the means to for akin to study the world after some time, it seems that he got accustomed to that behavior and it didn't bother him when Akin you know, even probed him. Hmm. Lilith was worried that 
maybe he was concealing disgust or resentment, but neither Akin nor Nikanj, in fact, couldn't find any uh, such concealed feelings. Nikanj told Akin that Tino is more adaptable than most humans, very similarly to Lilith. Mm-hmm. And we're also told that he calls, uh, Tino calls Akin his son. Well, and not necessarily his, but, but just, just, son. just son. Yeah, just son, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nikanj thinks that he was just looking for some family and he, for a home, and he found one. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Tino's a pretty decent guy, right? He's just uh, looking for somewhere to belong. I think he still, though, if I was him, I would still probably feel a bit of a grudge to Lilith for breaking that great bow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that would be uh, definitely a little bit of a sore point if you ask me. <laughs> but considering that, um, so were we told, like we were mentioned, there were we were it was mentioned in the previous chapters or maybe in the previous book that there were some animals that were modified to survive. Hmm, yeah, I believe they mentioned that the radioactive planets, right? But hmm. like we were not told about anything that like they could have been like anybody hunting for animals or anything most of it is just talking about you know vegetables that were like or fruits grown in the gardens that have like for example the now extinct pig flavor pork flavor right but we mm-hmm. weren't told about any hunting of animals at all um well i think it's assumed so tacitly that the, the humans were hunting animals to some degree right um I mean, the fact that they had bows would suggest that they'd be hunting what they might be able to, to catch in the forest. So, but we're talking about yeah. the resistor villages, not the trading villages, because the trading villages mostly focus oh, on yeah, yeah. Um, growth, hmm. uh, plant growth. The trading villages, I think, wouldn't hunt because that's, I mean, the Oankali seem very um, down on that idea, right? Yeah. And they were always trying to stop them from fishing and so on when they were up in the. Uh, like the jungle practice area and on the ship. Would they? Even though they, I mean, they, they might, yeah, they, they, well, they, they provided them with the alternative food, but well, they weren't sort of actively trying to stop them, but they kind of clearly disapproved <laughs> when they were trying to fish. Okay, fair enough. So we are told a bit more about Tino and his life in the village now. As Tino cut down a small tree, Akin wondered why the man enjoyed it. Because he didn't like gardening, we're told. He didn't like to write down his pre-war memories to preserve knowledge for the later generation. That's one thing that people would do in the trade villages, just write down all their knowledge or memories um, for preservation for future. The constructs wrote down about their lives in the village and even the Onkali themselves, although through humans, would tell uh, their stories to be written down. Tino was interested in none of that. He would cut wood, build things, help with fish farm or animal farms, uh, construct animal farms. He built canoes and traveled with Ahjes when she uh, visited other villages, even though she could swim underwater. Hmm. Again, it was surprised how quickly Tino accepted her. He was fascinated by her pregnancy, especially when both her and Akin tried to tell him what it was like to touch the growing child and feel its response, its recognition, or its intense curiosity. They eventually they started trying to persuade Nikanj into trying to stimulate the sensation for Tino, although initially resisting the idea when the moment Tino asked it to for it, Nikanji immediately relented. <laughs> Such a soft spot. Just uh, sim- simulating the sensation of growing child in the womb. Yeah, I think that was, uh, and also being able to communicate with it in some sense. Yes. Or, or yeah, because uh, that's another interesting thing there, because you know the the Oankali have this you know this this chemical communication thing, which means they have much more like interface with their their child before it's born yep which is yeah a super interesting idea they can check anything is wrong or anything is you know mm-hmm. as everything is going fine um it's incredible like you can you mm-hmm. can that they can check something like this and i think i know I, I get tino's enjoyment in in cutting down trees with, with an axe you know that's a that's a fun activity <laughs> and then making something from the result right it's a no I, you know like if rewarding. you I, I think it's matter of fact that like it's some people I think enjoy including myself as well and you uh, from what sound like from uh, sound of it you know creating something with your own hands right 
So you start with the raw material and then you, you do something with it. And I think it also helped um, Tino to get his mind off things that we learned in a second, actually, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so once Nikonich relented, you know, the book says it gave Tino the sensation and held him longer that was necessary. That was good, Akin thought. They, Tino needed to be touched more. And this is why maybe Tino enjoyed doing things with Hans to get his mind off things. Akin noticed that humans needed the physical contact and because of Don Kali, this contact would often be dist- uh, disturbed because they wouldn't be able to touch each other without the presence of an Uloi. As with Lilith, Tino would spend days frustrated, screaming or not talking to Nikanj, and sometimes leaving the village for several days to cool off. I couldn't, Akin couldn't understand why was it important, so important to impart this behavior, like the fact that um, people cannot touch each other without the presence of an Uloi, knowing how much humans needed the physical touch. Eventually, everything went back to normal. Tino was very attached to the family and content most of the time, but like Lilith, Poisonously resentful and bitter sometimes. Hmm. The kids worry that he might leave, but the adults seem certain he would stay. And I think that what might be the reason why he jumped into like the physical work because just to take his mind off things. Hmm. hmm perhaps. Yeah. But the, yeah. I mean, it, it is a it's an interesting thing for for Akeen to be wondering here, though, because it's um, uh, you know, he's he noticed that uh, the humans need the physical touch and that mm-hmm. the Uloi being the kind of intermediary between them is preventing them from having it. But, uh, you know, Akin himself is, is you know, half Oankali, so we've got this interesting perspective on both sides of that. I think it's the first time... Yeah, I think this is where really the, the constructs stood now are the true bridge between the Oankali and the humans. Mm-hmm. They understand the human nature and they understand the Oankali nature. And I think that's the reason why they can like really understand that they need the physical touch humans need vis- the physical touch but also understand the onkali nature and the reasons why they do it although i i guess it's it's a bit weird for me and it's also i think controlling that the fact that uloi donkali made it so that humans cannot touch each other you know it, it wouldn't be mm. a problem like making them infertile without the on- the woolly presence fair enough but like that physical touch sometimes is needed you know and i mean i, I assume it's a component of creating kind of a uh, an intimacy between the the three parties in a and you know what, what, what is required for an amankali yes like sexual relationship right because mm-hmm. it, it requires all three of you to be there but if the two of you can have intimacy on your own then you don't need the uloi there right so it's it's like kind of like the their means of transitioning to to the three um person uh like reproductive unit from yeah. a two-person reproductive unit right they, they want the uh, a sort of a family module that that requires all three parties for for its intimacy to function, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Which like from their bio from the perspective of their biology that that, that makes, makes sense, sense. So, because mm-hmm. the red eye mm-hmm. used to the three um, person relationships or sexual mm-hmm. reproductive units, but yeah, mm-hmm. in the same time, like it's in a way it hard for I guess for humans, um, but then again. Relationship, multi people relationship. Uh, was it polyamorous? No, poly. Yeah, polyamory. Polyamory, no, isn't it? Like the you know the fact that people can make relationship with multiple people, right? And everybody's mm-hmm. content with it to certain degree, certain degree. So, I don't know. It's it really depends on the perspective. But then I guess it's also the fact that you know it's that it physically makes people you know not being able to touch on their human like not even doesn't have to be a sexual touch you know just the physical holding hands or something that you know we know that it was already a problem when um joseph and lilith um you know that's that scene when they were Mm -hmm. lying in the hammocks and then like trying to you know hold each other's hands and then suddenly just like fell like they, they can't so that that was i think you know a problem yeah, it, it it seems like they they can't separate the kind of um, 
the well actually I, I suppose you, you wouldn't necessarily want to separate the the sexual intimacy from the interpersonal intimacy because it's still like the i suppose the the thing that you're trying to construct from the um owen carly perspective is not just the like a a, 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 a sexual relationship among three parties but like a, a family unit as it were or a reproductive unit that that's going to be um like working together to to raise a child as it were from, no i understand evolutionary point of view so that's yeah it, there's it's intimacy beyond just yeah because yeah. i was just thinking because if you wanted to control just the intimacy you could literally make um for example them uh, like humans not being able to feel arousal um without the presence of the oloi like for example right everything else would be fine but like if there's any arousal needed basically mm. you need the blue blue on kali pill yeah but it's a, it's you know you've you got to zoom out to the the um the broader evolutionary perspective on on the reproductive um, unit, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about the sexual intimacy; it's about the the, the, the family, pair bonding yeah. to yeah. to maintain the 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 kind of the social unit of the family, mm, absolutely, in order to to function to raise the child. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, it's it makes sense when you're actually thinking about it and break it down, um, mm. which uh, represents quite a uh, a depth of insight, I think, on the uh, the way that this stuff would work out biologically from from Octavia. Mm, true, true. Honestly, um, it's really well thought through. Um, mm. Back to the chapter. Um, the story progresses with Tino um, continuing cutting trees when he saw Akin tasting a large caterpillar, a huge one. It was almost the size of, size of Akin's foreman. It was bright red and spotted with what appeared tufts of stiff black fur. It was a very poisonous caterpillar which could even kill a human. It didn't need to sting, but just a touch mm. of those tufts would be enough to put a human down, an adult human, in fact. Tino saw it and froze. Akin knew of those facts and eventually allowed the caterpillar to go back onto a tree. He knew that the insect was not poisonous where it touched as its pale underbelly was safe to touch. And we are um, told a bit more detail here about the nature of modifications by the uloi. It ate mm-hmm. other insects. It even ate small frogs and toads. Some uloi had given it characteristic of another crawling creature, a small, multi-legged, worm-like peripatus. Now, both caterpillar and peripatus could project a kind of glue to snare prey and hold it until it could be consumed. And those caterpillars were mm-hmm. basically a means to allow trees to mature and grow and without being eaten by other insects okay yeah so they're doing a bit of uh, ecological engineering to uh, uh, create some creatures with a niche that, that serves to function there in, in their like plan to rejuvenate the ecosystem yeah but at the same time to like you know we are told about like anything colorful in nature is usually poisonous and you should steer mm-hmm. away from it um but the fact that you know like things that are so poisonous to kill a it's it's evolution is crazy isn't it because you know a human uh, you could be you could be a full-grown man and just bite into a like this poisonous colorful frog and you die and then there's some animals yep. that evolved alongside that been feeding on those animals and they've developed like evolved resistance or at least means to counter the poison in them and it's just like a evolutionary arms race basically to get more poisonous mm. versus the how to quicker um a resolution of that poison within your organism and it's just like and all the other animals that mm. accidentally touch you or eat you and you're they're just gone <laughs> yep and if, if you're not like a participant in that arms race then then uh, you're screwed yeah like yeah take a step back <laughs> <laughs> yep uh-huh. the uh the sort of big colorful caterpillars are, are, are fun looking things though aren't they? oh they're, they're uh, honestly beautiful and i absolutely yeah. love the, the camouflage that some of them they have like the ones that look like for example head of a snake I think that's oh, the yeah, yeah. that's the greatest mm. one I've ever seen. It's really the camouflage in nature is just incredibly beautiful. I really like the ones that look like um heather. They're like green and, and black with little purplish pink tufts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because they look exactly like a stem of a of a piece of heather. Uh, I see, I see. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, yeah. 
No, honestly, it's 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 incredible. Like, and um, you know, back in the um. GCC biology when we were told about the white moths and gray moths about like the pollution and how like the oh, survival in yes. this very standard um, example of evolution of like which moth will survive you know what environment and adaptation to environment and it's it's like things like this you know it's it's a small part of the you know you, you do learn about GCC but you know it's it's not just moths it's like everywhere in nature. Mm-hmm is necessary to have this adaptation. Hmm. Man, who thought that GCSE biology would be useful (laughs) (laughs) to understand this stuff? Yeah, who knows? It's interesting that the the Oncalia are perfectly happy to create things that are poisonous to humans, though. It's not like... It seems like they should probably have, like, uh, you know, factored out the the poison that affects the humans if they're reintroducing the humans to this environment i know right <laughs> maybe but then again like uh, to be honest i was just thinking um there's probably i don't know like uh, what the estimation currently is the amount of species on the planet right and we know maybe like the undersea like maybe 10 percent of the undersea species i, I mean uh, i I imagine that's if we're if we're lucky. But, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing is kind of the, there's a difficult bit of a definitional issue when you start to be like, how do we count the number? Yeah. of Bacterial and viral. Exactly. And, exactly. Like, so it, that's what I'm like. That's what I'm alluding to. So Don Kali had to came to Earth, right? And they were like, oh, okay, okay. So basically, this species that we are interested to trade with, like basically, blew the planet to smithereens, and it's so radioactive that some of us have died. Um, whatever survived, let's modify it so it can survive the radiation, uh, radioactive fallout, and you know, let's see and like repopulate the planet with plants and whatever. Hmm. But considering the amount of species let's say like during the nuclear war like 1995 or maybe never even 99% of species have you know went extinct mm-hmm. it's still the 1% is still going to be a lot so i just cannot imagine like don yep. kali just you know spending like modifying them one by one you know the bacteria not bacteria maybe bacteria not but like the the bit multi uh, cellular organisms it's gonna be yeah, a I mean, long job to do. I imagine they're kind of picking out, you know, sort of key species for particular ecological purposes, right? You know, pick one that that can have some useful function if you change it, because I mean, otherwise, it, yeah, it would be a bit of a bit of a gargantuan project. But I mean, you you say that, but like, eco like ecosystems are very, you know, you know, there's there's a balance, right? And like, if you remove mm. one thing. Of course, like I'm for hundred percent eradicating all mosquitoes, cause fuck him. Uh, but like <laughs> some other like insects, for example, like if you did, like there's gonna be some imbalance in the ecosystem, and all other things can come mm-hmm. in and f- you know fill it that gap. But still, it's not going to be that easy to balance it out. Like you know, the great example of you know eradicating of all the sparrows in in China, and then basically getting famine because of the locust population you know and stuff mm. like that so it's it's it it makes me think that like you know i'm just awaiting for example like this low village suddenly be suddenly being overloaded by locust um destroying everything <laughs> for example so hmm. yeah i mean i imagine that the the Carly must have some particular insight into to predicting ecological outcomes or otherwise they they probably wouldn't be as good as they are at what they do <laughs> but uh yeah I'll, i suppose i don't know much about the um the biology kind of the, the species that survives mass extinction events but presumably just off the top of my head species that survive mass extinctions must be more likely to be like kind of generalists like not super highly specialized mm-hmm. niches that that are dependent on a bunch of other stuff in order to exist because otherwise you know the like if, if the mass extinction will break a bunch of those dependencies so all of those particular like highly interrelated webs will end up collapsing and killing off the particular species yeah. so the, the the ones who's who found their niche in something more more generalizable will have been the ones that that uh, Survive. survived mm-hmm. in in the past so presumably uh, many of the surviving species in the uh, the new ecosystem that uh, uh, 
is is beginning to develop on the you know the, the new earth will, will have been um relatively ecologically simple yeah uh, because they will be the ones that survived long enough to uh, uh get picked up by the Amonkali. i wonder what um like um deep sea creatures would look like if there was any difference and if there would be like um also the question is like does the deep like the, the fallout the you know of the radioactive fallout drop at the bottom of the sea and affect the species or does it like get washed off i mean the question mark? I, I don't know i expect the super deep ocean is almost unaffected by much of the stuff that's going on up at, at this level right I, I would have thought that very little gets down to the the real depths but um, I mean, as long as there are still a few things up here dying and periodically ending up on the ocean floor, then mm. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if much would be likely. To, I mean, to if you can survive them. that pressure of water, I mean, like I don't think radioactivity would do much to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so things like like the the thermal vent type mm-hmm. organisms, they already have insanely highly resistant to. DNA and genetic damage. Well, yeah, that's phenotypes. that's where we got. That's thanks to them, those those beings that we can do all the modern science because of the, like restriction enzymes they have that are resistant to heat. So, yeah, and the the TAC polymerase yeah. that we use in PCR, or we used to. I mean, there's some some better thermal ones, but yeah, the the Thermus aquaticus, I think, something like that. It's a, it's a deep sea uh, hydrothermal vent um, dweller that has a polymerase that's super thermostable, so we can heat it up. Yeah. Um, but it, it, the same thing applies to to them for for like radioactive based damage, right? They have a, a high level of uh, ability to recover from from damage, be it, be it induced by extreme heat or presumably by um, radiation sources. Yeah, uh, I'd guess. But um, I don't know. I mean, some of the other stuff that's that's not on hydrothermal vents, that's just in the the deep plane. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure what the how likely it would be that radioactive material would get down there and accumulate, and then what the concentration would be like. That they're so sparsely placed down there anyway that I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they. My 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 bet is they'd probably be fine. <laughs> yeah, I guess you know if you have such a good DNA repair systems, then I think you know it probably would be fine and like bacteria that grow around there would probably even be more um uh adaptable to such environment mm. so but i mean even like the the deep sea anglerfish type things the, the the ones that are just like uh really sparsely placed and, and will very occasionally manage to catch something uh I, I suspect that you know things would be dilute enough and uh far enough away from basically everything else that they'd be more or less unaffected potentially yeah. very little is known about them right um we don't know how how old they are i suppose and how how many uh, i mean a few of the species that have been caught maybe they've managed to do some some phylogenetic analysis on them i'm, I'm not sure but uh i'd i'd bet that they're probably really really old <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely uh-huh. concerning the fact that they can survive um but the thing is like i wonder if you can even can you even bring them to the surface without like the decompression destroying their internal structure? Uh, I think some of them have been. I'm not I, because, I'm, like, for I example, remember, I think you have to bring them up in pressure vessels, basically. Yeah, because for example, like if you, um, you know, the f- infamous blobfish, right? The poor thing mm. is like it looks disgusting, or, or because it was caught and it was decompressed so quickly that it's just body just imp- like exploded in a way uh, mm. whereas underwater it actually looked completely different so mm. I mean yeah maybe like, a, like some chambers that are continually compressed and then maybe reduce the compression over time I don't know maybe it's the, the fish yeah. has requires that type of pressure to be to maintain its structure I don't know it's interesting quite possibly yeah, I mean, if you went that deep, it would be actually really hard to build a pressure vessel that you could bring up to the surface and not have it just explode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. I've never really thought about it. Have something to read upon, like to see mm. if there's any angler fish or anything that being brought to surface and survived, or is it just dead, basically? Yeah, yeah. 
I think most of the people just like go down there and take photos because it's so hard to get stuff. Well, it's so hard to get down there and it's so hard to get back up yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? I guess mm. let's go back to the chapter after this nice cha- tangent. Um, yeah, yeah. So back to the caterpillar. So Tino freaked out at Akin after the boy was free from the caterpillar. He shouted at him to never do anything so crazy again. But as he did, someone grabbed him from behind. Akin was far too late to realized that there was a smell of strangers, resistor raiders, who were stealing children. He tried to fight but was just a child and no matter his struggles he wasn't able to do anything. In the meantime, Tino was surrounded by four other men who already managed to hit him. They realized who he was, um... Well, I mean, they recognize he's the little kid and mm-hmm. uh, Tino introduced himself as Agustino Lil from Phoenix because they were also from the same village. As Tino was telling mm-hmm. that and searching for a way to get his hand on an axe, Akin realized that the strangers were holding long wood and metal sticks, guns. And these men knew Tino. One of them knew Tino and Tino did not like that one. Tino was afraid. Akin was, had never seen him more afraid. And... Akina considered stabbing the one holding him with a stinger on his tongue, but what would happen then? So he did nothing and just watched Tino, hoping the man would know what was the best course of action. Hmm. That's an interesting uh, point there, because like, Akin's being very... Uh, Logical and... Sort of in- intelligently and logically foresighted there, right? Yeah, he's, he's thinking it through. Yes. That, you know, yeah. like, considering he has no physical strength and the only advantage he has is the stinger, it's better not to use it and count that Tina's will come up with some good idea. Because, hmm. I mean, if, if he stings and kills one of these guys, then the others are probably going to try and kill him, right? Uh, yeah. So this is what a, I think an important dialogue from the book, so I thought was, I, I, I'll um, uh, read it. There was no guns in Phoenix when I left, Tinos was saying. So the sticks were guns. No, and you didn't want there to be any, did you? The same man asked. He made a point of jabbing Tino with his gun. Tino began to be a little less afraid and more angry. If you think you can use those to kill Don Cal, you're as stupid as I thought you were. The man swung his gun up so it almost touched Tino's nose. Is it humans you mean to kill? Tino asked very softly. Are there so many humans left? Are our numbers increasing so fast? Man, Tino's on fire. Like, Mm. honestly, this is, no. I don't think it's the best way to aggravate mm. them, but then he was getting angry at them, so... Yeah, yeah, that uh, may not be the best idea to, uh, to antagonize them, but uh, he makes a very good point. <laughs> yeah. The men didn't like what he said. No, they called him a traitor, and Tina's response was he wanted family, something that they couldn't get. The men checked Akin over because he looked the most human, you know, the most human-looking child, and eventually they decided to take the kid, but what would they do with Tino? Tino said that they can't take the boy because he's still nursing and he'll starve if they take him. The men were not so sure, like, th- that brought a bit of uncertainty to the uh, to them after hearing that, but none of mm-hmm. them decided to check Akin's mouth. But one of them decided, sorry, to check Akin's mouth. The moment he did, they were all startled seeing the great tongue and because Akin started crying. Now and then Onkali had hearing more sensitive than most humans realized and would be able to hear him. The chapter ends with Tino saying that he's just a baby and you can't get the baby to shut up by scaring him. Akin reached out to Tino hoping that he that the resistors would be less likely to hurt the two of them together if they see the baby being quiet and cooperate quiet and cooperative with Tino. But before that could happen, the man who first recognized Tino stepped behind and smashed the wooden end of the gun into the back of the Tino's of Tino's head. Knocked unconscious immediately, but then the man hit him again at the back of at the base of the neck, like a man killing a poisonous snake. Akin screamed in terror and anguish. He knew human anatomy well enough to know that if Tino were not dead, he would die very soon, unless an Onkali would help him. And there was no Onkali nearby. The resistance left Tino to his death and strode into the forest with screaming Akin. And that's where the chapter ends. Hmm. Yeah, Akin's continuing to be very astute here right he's, he's pretending to, to be like a normal baby crying um and a uh, uh, uh sort of acting as though uh um he, he'll be you know like reaching out to, to tino mm-hmm. and, and like so that if if they give him to tino he can be quiet so that they'll, they'll try have a reason to keep him alive it's you know he's very uh like uh you know 
uh, shop. No, absolutely, absolutely. So far, Akin, considering his circumstances, has made the best course of action, best choices for the course of action he needed to take. Because one, mm. like, you know, yes, if you had the physical strength of an adult man, then, you know, you could and if you had the speed and the strength like Lilith had the file, you know, or any adult construct, then yeah, you could probably do mm. some weird stuff by biting them or stinging them and probably surviving one or two gunshots. Um, but considering it's a Maybe. baby, then yeah, it, it, he couldn't do much. Mm-hmm. Acting uh, with uh, intelligent self interest, as they yes. say. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, yeah, Tino here in, uh, in in dire straits. It seems. Hopefully, they uh, they heard. Like the fact that they just went and cold blooded, um, like in cold blood, almost killed him. Like, like the fact that they didn't use, probably didn't want to waste the uh, ammunition. But like mm. the fact that they just went straight away and like at his, you know, like it is crazy. That there is like mm. okay. Basically, there's so many, so little humans left. Let's just, you know, um, kill whatever little that is left. Because, duh, logic. Hmm. That, well, I mean, it's kind of the like if if you don't if you, if you're not in in agreement with the uh, the men of the gun, the uh, in group. If you're not uh, in agreement with the yep, the men in the armed group, then the, you're a threat to them. So yeah, and. Uh, the fact is, you know, like, they brought guns, meaning that, you know, like, it's, this is one thing that I'm, like, the most interested in and scared of, for, scared mm-hmm. for, is that, like, they start talking about the South having weapons, right? I wonder to what mm-hmm. level do they have weapons, like, you know, if they have guns, they must have cannons. If they have cannons, how far do they go with those, right? Like, I feel like this is, um... Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what, like, to what degree it's going to be, like, the the civil war that I've been predicting, but I have this strange feeling that it might be quite, quite substantial at some point. Like, the the, the, the humans are arming themselves to against the Onkali. Hmm. I mean, I suppose it might be a um, they they might be limiting themselves to to small arms for the moment because I mean, I imagine that they're concerned about uh. To what level the Oankali will uh, sort of tolerate them doing stuff? If you see what yes. I mean, right? And so, if if you were of the mindset of you know we want to resist the Oankali, then you'd certainly want to keep it, uh, you know, secret yes. until such time as you wanted you had to actually engage with them, right? Because you know if, you, if you're just sort of openly manufacturing uh, like artillery pieces, then that's going to get their attention, and it's not going to it's not going to go well, right? Uh, so uh, I just I don't know I just imagine this situation it probably doesn't happen but like I have this feeling that like somebody smart out there is already trying to make a nuclear bomb like I have this weird tempting feeling that that there is already someone having fun with radioactive materials be like oh we had the radioactive uh, war that basically wiped us out yeah I know it's smart to get rid of Onkali using the same means yeah, but I mean, like, it seems very unlikely the Oankali would have left, like, any enriched nuclear material just, yeah. like, lying around on the planet. That's the sort of thing you'd you'd want to pick up, and and making that is not at all trivial. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, ma- making a nuclear bomb once you have enriched radioactive material is a moderately difficult engineering challenge. I mean, it's just a bomb, but- basically, that requires a bit of, you know, um, triggering. But, like, yeah, it's... but. Getting the enriched yeah, material is good, good. Good timing and shaped yeah. shaped charges expertise, basically. But like the uh, actually enriching the stuff is extremely, extremely difficult. That's, uh, I mean, like just taking a look at the the, like the Iran nuclear program, right? The their enrichment facilities and the, the like the centrifuges, it, it, like it, it requires a huge amount of very precise engineering effort to to extract. Uh, these it's unbelievably tiny concentrations of very particular radioactive nuclei and you've got you know you're doing this gas centrifuge stuff it's 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 like very very technically difficult mm-hmm. to enrich uranium yeah, yeah um so it's yeah like i 
if they can't bootstrap their way up to to much more than glass windows at the moment, I really can't see them doing anything with nuclear weapons for quite a while. <laughs> but the thing is, I. <laughs> but one other thing that I'm worried about is that you know what they might do. They might do. It's not that like they will aim the weapons at the Onkali, but they will aim the mm-hmm. weapons at the humans that decided to live with Onkali, right? That like that they will bypass the oh, yeah, like yeah. okay, we're not gonna touch you, but like you're not gonna have what you want in the form of the humans, and then just shoot now at the humans that decided to live with Onkali, and it's just yeah, yeah. I mean, Donkai said, "Well, if you die, you die, shame. We have your own copy. We have your copies, but pff, you know." <laughs> yeah, not terribly reassuring, I suppose. But I mean, that they are, you know, all inside the village that is this um, nascent spacecraft thing for for now. So they have a certain amount of. I mean, you know, they have guns. There. Then you know, the best uh, artillery that ever existed was the trebuchet. Let's be honest, you know the the finest human invention <laughs> so you know 300 meters uh <laughs> okay i'm not gonna go into the meme um, uh area but yeah you know it's just it's not like that you can't develop like an explosive you have a gunpowder you can have explosive and lob it you know with, with like any sort of catapult or trebuchet mm-hmm. so yeah. it's and those are re- relatively quite quick to build so well i suppose if if the um if the tree will break an axe, then the houses are probably a pretty reasonable bombshell. I, to be honest, to be fair, I think that might be the case. You know, like if if Don Cali thought like, oh, they're making gunpowder, let's just reinforce the houses to make them like you know bomb resistant. That'd be cool. Like you know, just walking around the village, they bomb everything. They're like there's basically no standing tree around the village, and there's this lush village just you know like as if nothing happened, right? Not even like a burn mark. That would really chip into somebody's <laughs> pride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this just reminded me a little bit of uh, like when I lived in Geneva. Uh-huh. The for for a long while, not while I was there, but for a long while pre- prior to when I lived there, it was mandatory for basically every residence to have its own nuclear bomb shelter. Okay. So like basically all houses constructed in Switzerland for I forget what the actual years were were, were like they all have a, a nuclear bomb shelter in the basement. It's like you know uh, like a foot thick concrete walls and like this massive like vault door mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thing. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a, it, it, it's weird for for it, like if you live anywhere else, like there's no like massive bomb shelters in the basement. But you go to Switzerland and like everywhere's got a massive bomb shelter. It's it's yeah. Uh, I think it's a hangover from the um, from the the World War Two yeah, era. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, the whole like uh, uh, the whole uh, national redoubt strategy. I think it kind of it persisted in the in the mentality. But yeah, and it's still it's still required for things like um, at least I think it is still uh, for for like um, big public spaces. Mm-hmm. So if you go to like the you know the multi story car park under like a, a a shopping center or whatever, there's a big massive even larger vault door bunker under there that can accommodate like everyone who was in the the shopping center at the time if they sound the like nuclear alarm okay okay that's <laughs> uh, yeah it's it's a weird quote isn't also but, in switzerland yeah. that um they rigged the uh, bridges with explosive just in case of any invasion happens again they would just blow up any entry uh, entries to the cut to the country Oh yeah, during during the um, during the war when because the, they, they were encircled by the the Axis mm-hmm. powers and they didn't want to, uh, I mean, the kind of Swiss neutrality thing is always contested a little bit. Like people think that they were uh, too neutral, but they didn't really have any choice. Uh, they, but to but to sort of accommodate the Axis powers to some degree, but they they only permitted them to use their their railways to transport like wounded soldiers and uh, I think certain classes of goods, but they they really needed those assets. Um, to, to be able to transport them through Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So they really didn't want any of the, the trains uh, tunnels because, you know, like through the Alps and stuff, there's all of these extended tunnel systems that are, the, the Swiss trains run on. And the Swiss had all of those rigged to blow. So if, if there was ever any, ever any, like, suggestion that the the Axis powers were going to invade, they just you know, blow up all of the, the tunnels. And, and they were all trained in, um, like, guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. stuff. So they had... So, so this this national redoubt strategy, where basically they'd retreat to the the bunkers, and they had these insane bunkers with you know 
kitted out for ridiculous periods of survival and they were all you know in some like geographically inaccessible location where if you wanted to approach it you'd have to approach it over like this tiny mountain road attached to the side of a mountainside all of which was rigged to blow and all of which was like covered by you know like several gun emplacements <laughs> with like 30 millimeter cannons and stuff right so it's just like if you'd attempted to invade switzerland it would just have been an unbelievable bloodbath for you um so it's just like uh, their strategy was basically you know Try it. You will regret it. Uh, I guess... Uh, <laughs> and, and it kind of works. Yeah, I mean, it worked, but I feel like if like if they really wanted to, I feel like, you know, deploying planes would, like, probably sort a bit of it, but still... Uh, I mean, even then, it would have been tricky. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Certainly, I mean, like, the... Um, so the... I think it's the, the Swiss... Um, like infantry units, they were trained a lot in guerrilla tactics for the mm-hmm. time. They 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 all had the, they had these crazy rifles. I think it's the the Sturmgewehr fifty seven. Mm-hmm. I think it was fifty seven. Might be the wrong number, but it's a uh, this crazy accurate like light submachine gun tile style rifle. But there was also like a a, a sniper rifle quality of like <laughs> accuracy. It was uh, had an insane rate of fire. Plus, it also had this thing where you could mount like a rocket propelled anti tank grenade thing to the front of it. And like fire it off like a mortar, <laughs> just it's uh, crazy. And they had these like um, squads of um, like bike-mounted commandos who could like uh, cycle through the mountains and stuff. It was just this, this like uh, and engaging with their their infantry in on like their home territory. Even if you had like armored divisions of tanks, would have just been an unbelievable nightmare. <laughs> it's i think that that was the whole point of their their military strategy was to just to make it like utterly unappealing to invade the country because like your losses would be insane could have stood there switzerland but you know everybody has to make some tough choices in the prospect of a war Mm. but anyway i guess Mm. let's go to the chapter one prediction of the part two phoenix i guess Mm -hmm. so in chapter one, I think we will see the journey Akin survived going to the human village with his captors. Um, I have this feeling that you know, he will still try to pretend to be just a child and try to absorb and get more information from them, um, you know, like to understand what's the situation. But it might be the point that because his listening skills, he, they might realize that how intelligent he is actually. And Let's see. That was my prediction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gonna sort of try and stay under the radar and, and, and conceal. Yeah. And I feel like maybe this chapter will like jump between Akin and Tino's perspective. Maybe Tino mm-hmm. and Lilith's like just going from the low village to Phoenix Village and how they are like eventually meeting at somewhere in the middle. Okay. So not to leave us too hanging on whether or not Tino's still alive, I suppose. Um, I don't know, yeah, maybe just like, yeah. just a nice cliffhanger, like, is he alive or is he not? Let's see. Mm. I don't know how long they're going to leave us in limbo on that one. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, that's my that's my prediction. Okay. Awesome. Uh, in that case, I think that's everything for this episode. Yes, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We are Xenothesis. You can find all the places we upload our podcast on our website, xenothesis.com. I was Michael Glinka. I was Richard Acton. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye.